This week is my 70th year in ministry. Um, now, I, I say as far as um, those earliest years, thank God they hadn't invented tape recorders. And so I can't share with you the gems that I gave in those early days. But um, it is 70 years. Um, 70 years ago, uh, I was a terrified kid um, in my early teens who had come out of World War II with some sort of psychological problems that I, I couldn't face people. I was terrified of people and um, would even just stand at the back of the church lest someone got too close. And um, I was, and I'll simply say tricked, into going to a, a church that I had already been to and left because they were too excited. <clears throat> they hugged. They they did a lot of terrible things, um, sang at the top of their voice. And I mean, that's bad enough in America, but in England, it's the last word. And um, But I ended up in, in this church. And that night... Um, I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and you can call that what you will. Theologically, I disagree with the people I ended up with, but um, I can only tell you that I had known the Lord for a few months. But that experience of the Holy Spirit totally healed my mind, I suppose you would say. I know everything that came out of World War II with me was cleansed out of me, and I, I was made whole. And um, that night I was in the prayer room until 2, 2.30 in the morning, and when I came out, the pastor asked me if I would tell his people on Sunday night what had happened to me, which I was only too happy to do until I was halfway home cycling home, and I realized I'd committed myself to actually talk to uh, other human beings and, and um, to do so publicly, uh, and I, I, all the fears just washed over me. But in that same moment came the assurance, it's okay. And that following Sunday, which would be this next Sunday, 70 years ago, I... Um, I spoke for, to the people, and it was the beginning because it never quit. I, I've been in a pulpit um, preaching every Sunday since then, and um, a hundred thousand times in between. And, and so I just announce it um, for what it's worth that um, I, you know, what's it say in Joshua? We we raise our Ebenezers. Um, Hitherto has the Lord helped us, and um, that's what I'm doing. And in those most early, 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 early years, I didn't know a thing about the Scripture, and I was reading Luke chapter 15, which is the story um, of um, the, the various <clears throat> lost, lost sheep, lost coin, and two lost sons. And this, this was the beginning of discovering the grace of God because when I first read that last story in Luke 15, which is the story of the elder brother, 
uh, I landed on the side of the elder brother. I, I thought he had a jolly good point. Um, you know, I, I'm, I know it sounds crazy saying that now, but at the time I said, he's right. He's the one who stayed home. He's the one that worked. He was the one who supported his father. And, and he's the one that got the short end of the stick. And I, I, I was very definite in my mind that the elder brother was the hero of this story. And then, of course, it dawned on me that that was not Jesus' point. Um, and I realized that whatever I had been taught up to that point seemed to be the very reverse of what Jesus was saying. And that was the beginning of my long, meandering journey into the grace of God. And now I want to basically share the essence of that. Um, I didn't plan it to be the 70-year anniversary, but it's just worked out like that because I've been immobile for three weeks. But um, uh, I want to share the story of the, um, Luke 15, but very specifically, and it's going to take me at least three weeks. And so this is going to be a, a three-hour or more message uh, split into three weeks. And it all comes down. I'm going to assume you do know what I'm talking about here. You know the story of the lost sheep. You know the story of the lost coin. You know the story that we call the prodigal son, the elder brother. Well, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to assume that you know what we're talking about. And But what I do want to read is where it begins. Now, all the tax collectors, and you know the tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were the richest men in town because they skimmed the taxes, took what they needed for themselves, and they were in the employ of the oppressors of the people. And so they were hated. They were even despised by their own masters, the Roman Empire. They despised the tax collectors because the tax collectors were Jews who had turned their back on their own people and now went and collected taxes for the Romans. But the Romans, in employing them, despised them for being the betrayers of their people. Uh, they were the most hated of all people, uh, and yet they were the richest and the most powerful in any town in Israel. But now all the tax collectors and the sinners, that means those that the synagogue had deemed as unrighteous and shouldn't be coming to their meetings, they were coming near him to listen to him. And apparently he was eating with them at the same time because both the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the essence of religion. They began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's what Jesus responded to, that one phrase. The Pharisees, the religious of the day, said that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus, the rest of the chapter, Jesus tells these stories to answer that one phrase. And it's important that we, we understand that, that this is a series of parables to explain 
to the Pharisees why he is receiving sinners and eating with them. Um, Now, right from the get-go, because this is what I'm going to share in the next three weeks, is quite honestly radical. Um, For some people, it's going to be shocking. For some, it will be scandalous. And some, I might never see you again. Uh, This is, is the... The, the, the set of parables. It's the moment when Jesus confronts religion and makes it forever abundantly clear he is not them and them is not he. And I find it fascinating. The only war that Jesus had with anybody was the religious and not with, with the, the, what was called the tax collector and the sinner. No, he he got on very well with them. But it was religion that this war was all about. And having said that then, I have to pose the question, who is Jesus? Who are we dealing with here? Uh, Is this a prophet? And I have to be absolutely clear, Jesus is not a prophet. A prophet of the Old Testament is one you could say was standing near to God and overheard what God said and got a bit of it and came back and shared the bit they got. And that is based on Hebrews 1 and 1, where it says that in in times past, God spoke through the prophets and and the loose translation is in bits and pieces. As, As in a jigsaw puzzle, you've got one piece, I've got another piece and they're trying to fit it all together. I was a prophet. Jesus was not a prophet. And I, I want to emphasize it. This is an area where we tend to speak very loosely sometimes. Uh, and we speak of Jesus, um, especially in this chapter, because this is such, well, uh, you know, the prodigal son has be, been reduced to tie a yellow ribbon in the old oak tree or something. It, is, it brings tears to people's eyes. What a wonderful story. The chap comes home, hugged and all the rest of it. And, and along with that goes, and you read some of the commentaries on it or the books that have been written, and they speak of the, the good master who said this and, and you know, the, the sweet Jesus and all that. No, no, please, uh, flush that down the toilet. Um, you can't just speak of Jesus as, as the prophet. He, he's, not, he's not the extraordinary anointed one, the messenger that God sent. No, he's not. Please get rid of those ideas. He's not the one that God created before he created everything else. He, he is not the God um, crea- creation who started just before this creation. Jesus is God, period. He is all that the Father is. He is all that the Spirit is. And he is God, co uh, all powerful, co all knowing, co eternal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He is God then who comes from God. And in that sense, not alongside of him, not listening to him, but from the very being of God, God comes to us. That is, if you listen to Jesus, you are listening to the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
He is the word of the Father. There are not, there's not another God behind Jesus who's saying other stuff. This is God himself who has come and joined us to reveal himself and his purpose to us. Finally, um, and he said, I'm the only one who knows the Father. And, and that, <laughs> that's the most amazing statement in the entire Bible. Jesus then goes back all the way to Moses and said, Moses did not know the Father. I'm the only one who knows the Father because I'm the one who comes out of the very being of the Father. Uh, to see me is to see the Father. He, he knows the Father, but Abraham didn't. And, and I mean, they, they knew God in a very wonderful way, but they didn't know him. They, they, you could say they, they knew his outer bands, but they didn't know the heart of God. Isaiah didn't know. Jesus said, I'm the only one who knows the Father. And he said, no one will ever know the Father unless they come by me. I share the Father with them. <clears throat> and so that makes a big difference when you're reading this. The, the, what we're looking at in Luke 15 is not some ideas, suggestions, thoughts, devotionals that a prophet had and now shares it with you, which is saying, I think this might be the truth. This is not someone who is suggesting that God might be like this. This is God himself who has become one of us so that now one of us is God being God. And he shares with us who God is, what God is like. He's not one voice among many. He's the final voice. He said, he's the word. He is the word. He is, Jesus did, I am the truth. I don't just speak truth, I am the truth. And so, don't be surprised if this that he says shatters all your ideas about God. Because many of our ideas about God, we made them up or our grandparents did, or ancestors did, and it's just being passed on. And when the real God himself, now one of us, speaks directly to us concerning this is who God is, it behoves us to take a double listen. This is God. And that makes all the difference when it upsets everything that we believe because this is God telling us what he's like. And that's this chapter is the turning point in the Gospels. That Jesus was accepted really by everybody up to a point. Uh, even the Pharisees had to grudgingly admit, no one could do what you're doing unless God is with him. And they would sort of halfway listen to him, even though they argued with him. But when it comes to this point, this is it. Jesus slams into religion and exposes it and shows the utter difference between him and the religious. And that comes all the way down to today because what the Pharisees were has simply been repeated in every generation. The, the Pharisee is not a stranger to the 20th 
um, for a century. Uh, he's everywhere. And um, therefore, I know that I'm speaking to Pharisees as I come to this chapter. I, I know that. And what I just said about my own reaction to this, that was the Pharisee Malcolm. I, I, I really thought the elder brother was a jolly good chap. And, and so um, understand it. This, what Jesus did is one thing. People had to admire at least what he did. But in this chapter, Jesus destroys everything that religion believed was a final and settled issue. And that includes what they believed about righteousness. And that would include what everybody here and all those who shall be listening to this, what we believe about righteousness. I come here and I begin to feel I'm being stripped of everything I ever believed. What is holiness? It's imprinted on us that holiness is... is, is well, it's a, there's a morbidity about holiness. It's that wretched set of rules when you you don't do it, you're damned in hell, you're holy. And when, when people say the word God and holy, they bow their heads. They look terribly solemn, holy. And whereas this chapter turns that on its head and shows holiness to be having a party and dancing and slapping each other on the back. You see what religion looked in not only horror, that's one thing, but they looked in a horror as they saw what everything they believed was being destroyed. And, well, yes, it was. That's what it's about. Judgment. Everything, everything they believed about judgment, which incidentally is very much the same as what the regular church believes today. Jesus turns it on its head actually makes fun of it in many ways. Um, this is it's a very upsetting chapter, very upsetting. And it's, no, this was it. You could say when they decided that Jesus had to be crucified, this chapter was where it began. They said, we can no longer live with this. This man's got to go. And, and it all came to a head because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Please understand that. This is not general. It wasn't that they just didn't like him. It was that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And before he ate with them, he received them. Right? We read that. He receives sinners and eats with them. Now that's it. The whole thing is happening around a table where there's food and there's a bunch of men who are sitting there and they're visiting with Jesus at a level of joy. It's a, it's a very happy scene. And that that's what enraged the Pharisees, that he was eating. That was the center of the storm. He received sinners. He was eating, and, and they're not just sinners. These were the worst of sinners, the, the closest, and it's, it's not 
No, it's not true all the way through by any means. But it's something like, because I go, well, what today would be a parallel to this? And the nearest I can get in a very awkward illustration is if you heard a report that Jesus was eating with the mafia bosses down on the Jersey Shore. And I'll go, what are you going to do with that? Is he going to speak at your next convention? Um, he, he's eating with the mafia bosses. We've already determined they're damned in hell. And, and so what's he doing? But you see, the trouble is, he wasn't only eating with them, he's having a jolly good time. And you can hear their laughter outside. And, and everybody's thrilled that he's there. That's something like what's happening here. Uh, but uh, he's certainly with the worst of sinners, the rejects of decent society. And I've said it before, when, when God became flesh, when he became one of us, he entered into our darkness. And, and if ever you, you would see it, it's right there. He is sitting with the worst characters of society. And he's sitting, eating with them. He has entered into our darkness at its darkest point. He's laying hold of us and he's not judging them. There's not the terrible silence of an awkward meeting. This isn't that he's called them together to tell them how bad they are. Um, actually, he's sharing in their shame. Because now everything people said about them, they're saying about Jesus. He's sitting there in solidarity. He's actually joining in their rejection by the people. They are despised, and so now they're despising Jesus. And yet in that situation, he's having a party with them, a very joyous party. He's on their side. Um... I can understand, totally understand, that the Pharisee, the the evangelicals of the day, held themselves aloof. In fact, one possible meaning of the word Pharisee is separated. That they were separated. They 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 pushed, you know, the 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 dirty scum away from them, lest they should catch it. They were sort of the religiously masked people and walked among society afraid they're going to catch their sin. Uh, and so they're, they're separated people. Uh, and they, they, they're damning the tax collector. And, and they did it every Sabbath in the synagogue. They named all tax collectors in town publicly and then announced these can never be saved because they have sinned beyond salvation. They did that every week. Now, Jesus is sitting with those persons that have been thus designated. This was the worst nightmare that religion could imagine. Can, can I just throw this in as an aside, really, that this is another aspect of the love of God. Can, can you get this? God singles you out and declares his love for you even if he loses everybody's approval in so doing. That, that's what this is. 
he sat with people and made it plain that that he was standing in solidarity with them and in so doing he lost the approval of every decent person in Israel this was not limited to the Pharisees they were the most vocal opponents but all, all the the decent people the nice people the kind of people that said I don't go with the mafia you know it's the, the people that you know the the backbone of society and they'd been with Jesus with this they would have to back off and say I don't know about this man I've no idea where he's going with this he ate with them you've heard me say this before that eating still to this very day in the Middle East but in fact in much of third world it is a covenant statement you you just don't eat with anybody you never eat just to stuff your face because you're hungry you know, eating is a sacred matter it is sitting with persons and your hand is on their table and touching their food and, and they are accepting you you are accepting them and you are now standing in a covenant bond with them a bond of solidarity and that's exactly what Jesus was doing he was saying I stand with you your shame is my shame the way they rejected you they reject me um, if God be for us uh, that's he is for and he's doing it publicly you know if, if you've got to do this Jesus at least you know do it in a basement somewhere and send out private invitations um, because you 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 this is the biggest if, if Jesus ever had a manager who is going to make sure he establishes the kingdom of God the manager would have resigned I'll oh, forget it I mean you have this is unforgivable that you are eating you are making a covenant statement with tax collectors with sinners and you're doing it publicly this is a big thing uh, it comes up later in the story that Jesus told of what we call the prodigal son where the father I don't know if you have thought this one through the father was not embarrassed that this was his son um, again in, in another world to ours but he comes home smelling like a pig and, and that in itself he the man's gone he's finished he's done and coming back to a village where the custom was that if you walked away from your father like this guy did all the young men of the village would meet you as you came back to beat you and teach you a lesson this boy came back hated for what he had done and the father's not embarrassed by him he, he gives the son forgiveness in a very public fashion and he allows the son to participate in his wardrobe and walk around in one of his coats um, and they're, they're sitting together at the feast as father and son and he's announced it blatantly this is my son he's not I'm not ashamed of him he doesn't demand that the son make a public self-loathing 
and say, I'm no good, hear me, village, hear me. You're right, I'm wrong, I'm an unworthy, no good. There's no public groveling. There's no going forward in front of everybody to say, I'm a sinner. No, that just happened all privately as the son came home and the father shut him up when he tried that. No, when, when the village saw this man, he was walking beside his father, not shuffling like a beggar, walking, and he was dressed, he's washed, and he boldly acted like a son. Now, it's very interesting that the, the Pharisees used a very specific word here. He received sinners. I couldn't believe it last week. Um, I was on sitting up there on Zoom last week. Um, and Clint used this scripture, but he used this word. And I've never heard anybody note that the word is even there. But Clint did it, and I, really I was not even going to bother to repeat the definition because he did a perfect job. But I will because it, I wanted to lock into what we're saying. But it's made up of two words, the word receive. He receives sinners. That is, he didn't only sit down with sinners and eat with them. That would have been bad enough in the eyes of the Pharisee. But he received them. And the two words, the first word, it, it, it means uh, bring them face to face. It, it means, it's the same word used of Jesus was face to face with the Father. It means the highest level of intimacy. It means, you know, face to face, I'm looking into your eyes. That means there's no shame. Uh, if you meet someone who's ashamed, their eyes go down. Face to face means we're eye to eye. There's no shame existing between us. You totally accept me and I totally accept you. And it then the second word, it means to receive someone, but in a very personal, a very warm, it's a very generous. Do you know what I mean? This is not just meeting someone at the door and saying, you know, good morning. This is the bringing of someone into your life with great delight and therefore your welcome and all that goes with it is very warm and generous and um, what can I say? It's, it's a word that's always used to describe the two involvement. It isn't that you come and sit at my table. It is that I'm stand, I get up and I put my arm around you and I sit you at my table. That we're both involved. It's intense. There's an involvement. Um, it, it's used to describe receiving into one's house. It's got the overtones of very generous hospitality. I, I want you in my house. So I, I want, I receive you to myself. I accept you in my life. I cherish your presence. And that means you've come into my inner circle. And with that, the word means there's physical contact. So again, it's not a simple, 
you know, welcome to my house. It, it is, there's, there's a hug in this word. There's an embrace that draws you to. Um, it might be a very warm, rich handshake, but whatever, the, the, there's this idea of physical contact to bring you into my family. It means let's be companions together. Let's share joy together. It's also got in it the idea of anxiety in the sense that if you said you were coming, I stand at the window and I pace and I'm waiting and I'm watching. There's a certain kind of anxiety that this person, I want them to be here. And so I'm waiting at the window to see if they're coming. Uh, yeah, Jesus received sinners. He did not stand there as the aloof holy man and say, you know, find a seat. Rather, there's an embrace. There's that rich handshake. There's, I want you here. I've been waiting for you to come. I receive you. I receive you into my inner circle. I receive you into my family. You're in. That was the problem, you see. They said, this man receives it. I, I don't know how they got the words out. You know, he receives sinners. What kind of a man are we dealing with here? Yeah, this, he receives sinners to, to a Pharisee who if, if, if he happened to you know, brush against a tax collector in the marketplace. Then he would go home and wash his clothes. Um, he, he, he touched. But this is, Jesus didn't only touch, he was eating and eating covenant. Not only eating, but he received them face to face. There's an element, and it's not here, it's elsewhere, but there's an element in the language where, where we say Jesus laid hands on people and healed them, there's an element that he took their face in his hands. That the, it's that there's an intimacy there. That um, yeah, religion said he welcomes them. I mean, if a Pharisee, and that's a big if, but if a Pharisee could imagine eating with a tax man, well, what would it be for? It would be to tell the tax man how bad he is and to tell him there's absolutely no hope. He's got a track record that's never going to be wiped out. And and to compare, for the Pharisee was very quick to say, I thank you, O God, I'm not as other men. And, and so the the at, at best, at best, I say the Pharisee couldn't imagine, but at best the tax man was second class. That's at best. But that would be it. The idea of anything like a welcome and eating, no, that would be impossible. Can I say it again? This is God doing this. I mean, get used to it. This is your God. You know? This isn't something that a few on the the fringe is making up. This is your God. This isn't, I say again, you know, tie a yellow ribbon around the old This isn't all that emotional. This is foundational. 
God sat down intentionally, publicly, almost baiting religion, sat down with the totally unacceptable, even in the eyes of the ordinary good people. Why, why, why were the Pharisees so against this man? Why is any religious person against those who don't conform? It's because their whole understanding of God, salvation, acceptance, righteousness is based on behavior. And based on behavior, then if your behavior doesn't match up, then you're rejected. And that that's right there. That was very easy to say. But right there is where all the trouble is. Right to this very day. Because God accepts without any reference to behavior. And I don't care who you are, that is a tough one in 21st century America to swallow. Because at heart, most believers today are Pharisees. To say that God loves and draws to himself without any reference to behavior that there's, there's no other way you can explain this. He's eating covenant solidarity with men whose behavior forbids that in the eyes of what we call holy. But he's saying here, you're not accepted by good behavior. And bad behavior is not going to equal rejection. It's not about behavior. This is about a love that loves without reference to behavior. Okay. Did, I, did I say that plainly enough? Um, I, I don't know any other way to say it. He welcomed and sat and ate with peoples whose behavior in the eyes of what we call religion says that God could not even look at them, let alone sit and eat with them. You see, if God loves those who has a, have a record of good behavior, then God is not love. Um, we create his love. We are the ones who bring it out. God isn't love. I have to be good first, and then God will love me. So therefore, God is not love. God is only love when I allow him to be love. I'm in control of his love. I, I control it by being good. And so I can stop it by being bad. And that's why you get this awful, awful, don't get me started, but the, the dear people, and it's not the people I'm talking about, it's the leadership, the shepherds, who, who encourage people to get saved 
every week. Because that's what it is. God loves you based on behavior. So if you screwed up on Wednesday, you'd better get saved again on Sunday. What damnable heresy. See, this is a love that loves us in the midst of our worst behavior. Because they hadn't, no one's repented here. No, No one said, well, Jesus, you know, here's my ticket to the, the party, it's a promise, I'll never do this again. Uh, no, they, they, these are the guys doing it. Tomorrow morning, they're going to go and be tax collectors. They're in the middle of it. And he loves them in the middle of their worst behavior. That is the only love that can change behavior. You ever thought about that? You've got to love me as I am. Or there's no hope of changing. A love that is limited to loving people who do the right thing produces all manner of evil. That is why there is so much evil in many of our churches. And it's an evil that is accepted. The manipulation, the hypocrisy, the masks, the lying, um, Envy, bitterness, backbiting. Why? It's all because we're all jostling for this place uh, of being accepted by God. And I've got to prove to you that I'm better than you so that God can accept me. It's a disgusting thing. Um, But the Pharisees, she recognized this. They recognized this is cutting to the very foundation of our faith. this wasn't a sort of be nice to tax men day. This isn't Jesus saying, well, you know, let's be nice to them for a day. Um, no, Jesus was saying this is the kingdom of God and there, there's nothing else. Which means you Pharisees, religious, are exed out. You missed it Totally. And then he goes on, of course, to tell them the same thing, but in forms of these parables. And they they sounded, to begin with, uh, such nice parables about little woolly sheep. And But actually, Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet. This is a declaration of war. This, this is saying, everything you believe, you're off. And this, this is the kingdom of God and nothing else. And, and I, it's, I don't know if you realized it, parables, they're not just plain stories. Um, parables, among other things that I'm not getting into, but a parable is meant to mightily upset you. Um, a parable is a way of telling you the truth in a way that blindsides you. You didn't see this coming. And... and you you end up the parable is over and you're sitting there and you don't know what to do because you're mad at the person who said it but you can't really nail it down that, that's a parable yeah and apply that and you see when jesus gave parables that was the effect he had and he could say well i was only telling a story you see yeah but that story pulled the rug out from under you and the, the, these are these are parables and as you go through them, they're, they're 
again, it's this, you're not concerned with behavior. I mean, come on, why was the sheep in the wilderness? Because it was a stupid sheep who behaved very badly. But there's no mention of that whatsoever. The shepherd goes and just goes straight through its behavior and, and saves the sheep. And of course, the, the, the younger son and the older son, it's all about their, their behavior was terrible. If ever there was a sin against a father, this was it. But the father cuts right through it and, and loves and accepts, and that's what it's about. And running through the parrot, have you noticed it? It, it? The shepherd, when he finds the sheep, he rejoices. But then when he goes home and he's coming into where, where other shepherds are, he shouts it out, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So, And the word rejoice to the Hebrew people always meant a feast. A party. It was never something you did by yourself, nor is it something you kept quiet about. And, and so here, rejoice. Let, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Let's dance some music. Rejoice. I found. And, and then when the woman finds the coin, same thing. She says, Rejoice with me. I found my, my coin. And in the last two, it's acted out in that the father demands now kill the fatted calf and they have a party and it was a party so loud that the elder brother could hear the the noise of the music and the dancing way across the fields as he's not yet home and so this uh, here you have the jesus who welcomes sinners and eats with them and, and at the end of each one of these stories is rejoice with me that's I mean let's have a party which is what the Pharisees are seeing Jesus have with the tax collectors see Jesus is explaining what's happening um, and with the two boys the one who comes home um, he is and the word actually in the Greek there um, what is the when the elder brother asks? He says, "Your bro, you remember the servant answered, your brother is home. Your father has received him safe and sound.' You've got the same word receive, but actually safe and sound should be shalom, which means he has been welcomed. He's been re-included into the family, and all is peace. All is well." And that's why the party's going on, said the servant to the elder. Um, that, that's what it was all about. Uh, he ha he's being honored. The kid who has a track record of behavior that reeks to high heaven. But the feast is because the father loves him with no reference to his behavior and is honoring him as his son. And... Of course, then the elder brother, when he hears the party. Do you understand? He wasn't just mad at his, his younger brother, nor was he just mad at his father. He was angry that there was a party celebrating his younger brother. It goes back to that party again. 
and he hears the laughter, he hears the music, the dancing. And at that point, right then, not before, but at that point when he hears the party, that's when he exploded into a rage and insulting his father and everything else. It is then that the whole series of parables is summed up. The father goes out, do you remember, to the elder brother. The elder brother's standing on the porch. He won't come in. On the porch is where the servants were. And so he, he's really standing with the servants in the servant quarters on the porch. It's dark there because his evening has come and the, the lights of the party inside. And the, he won't go in. And so, But the father comes out to join him on the porch in the dark with the servants and he he cuts right to the, the chase. The, the elder brother go whining on and on all his complaints and the father just cuts to it and says it is necessary that we go into the feast and be glad and rejoice. It's the second great word of the parable, necessary. It's necessary. It's necessary to rejoice. It's necessary to join the feast. So he's back to that feast again, the party. It wasn't, he didn't say, no, you just got to go and say to your brother, I'm sorry. I'm going to get in there. You got get to the feast. It's necessary that we be glad and rejoice. Necessary. Why, why all this thing on the feast? Because that was the exhibition of the grace of God. What, what is happening in the feast? Except this kid has come home who deserves to be thrown out of the family. And yet he's not only not thrown out, he's honored and he's sitting with his father as a full son. That's the party. That's what the party was about. And the Pharisees see that with the, the tax collectors. That these tax collectors are sitting there and they're, they're, there's no, no one's telling them they're bad. No, no one's telling them that they're, they're wrong. Please, someone stop this insanity. They're enjoying themselves when they should be beating themselves. They should be crying, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy, have mercy. And Jesus said, no, pass the wine. You know, it's, do, do you understand? This is what upset everybody. And in the parables, that's what upset everybody. In the parables. And Jesus said, it's necessary. This party that celebrates uh, an acceptance with nothing to do about behavior, it is necessary. And that word, we've talked about it in the past. But the word necessary, it's an urgent response to a situation. It, it means it's the only, it's the only proper thing that we can do. It's on, the only thing that's fitting for this moment. It would be ridiculous to do anything else. It's necessary. This is the word. It, it means this is the only logical conclusion. One translation says it's inevitable. 
This is the way it's just got to go. There is no question. There's no discussion. No debate. This is the way it has to be. Unconditional necessity. And don't, don't pray about it. No, this is decided. It's got to be. It's absolute. It's unquestioned. The very character of this moment demands it. There is no alternative necessary. It's, but this is the important thing. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time in the New Testament, this word is used of a divine decree. So now we've moved beyond this. It's the only logical thing to do. We've moved now. This is what God says must be done. And many times this word is translated in the New Testament as must. So you've got Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer and die. That's the word. It is necessary. Meaning that there's no discussion. You, you understand? That this is the purpose of God, the plan of God. He must suffer and die. There's no alternative. Or in Acts 4 where it says, uh, there's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Um, that, that's this word, necessary. Um, it's a divine decree. And that means Jesus is telling us that this must that is summed up in the feast, this, this must is something that comes from the very being of God. This is the way God is. And you're not going to just dismiss it. You're not going to say, well, well I'll see. That, that's missing today a lot. Like if you go on the way to Houston, or probably and plenty of other highways, you, you'll see these signs. Have you seen them? The guy is sitting with his head in his hands, and you're, you're in despair. And, and underneath it says, try Jesus. Uh, you know, or you could try marijuana, or you could try coke. I, I, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Try, try. This is a must. You don't, you don't sit down. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what we've come to. We're coming from a long way. Try it, yeah. Um, I was very serious when I said, you know, try. It, it means whether. This is one possibility. It might. You know, I rubbed this on my knee and it helped the pain. You should try it, you know. I can't guarantee it will do anything, but you should try it. No, this is necessary. It's a divine decree. God has entered into the darkness of the human race and he has told us who God is and he has told us that he is the way out. That's not a suggestion. The trouble is, you see, that cancels all the necessaries of religion. If this, this love that bypasses behavior, 
if that's God's necessary, then religion, religion didn't get it half right. The gospel is not a minor chiropractic adjustment to something that's pretty well got his act together. It is saying that religion has got it so wrong, so utterly wrong, they have missed the only necessary that Jesus said made the kingdom of God. They missed it. God has come inside the human race and inside the darkness declared forgiveness. A forgiveness so profound that it makes the past as if it never happened. It, it makes the worst things we have done the pathway that leads straight to God's salvation. That changes your behavior. You think about it. When you're confronted with the love that accepts you totally just where you are, as you are, that's the first step to change. That love changes you. But to say that you've got to change so God can love you makes you only the more manipulative and dark and but this tells us the divine necessity had never been conceived by religion, not even as a remote possibility. Nor did they want it. You know, men love darkness rather than light because they, they didn't want this because they were so enamored with their own behavior that one of the number one characteristics of the Pharisee is comparison. You can't really be a Pharisee without comparison. It doesn't work. Um, I've got to have people around me that are not as good as I am. I've got to have people around me that I can hate. Um, makes a good Pharisee. I've got to have someone there that I can say, I thank you, O oh God. I'm not as other men, and I'm certainly not like him. And I feel good. I feel good about that. So just stay the way you are, and I'll hate you for it, but I need you there. A Pharisee uses other people as mirrors in which to preen themselves. This really collapses all of that. Says the gospel has nothing to do with that. Okay, what are we saying here? The necessity of religion is summed up in reward and punishment. You think about it. And now, Jesus is having this confrontation to say, in God, there is no reward and punishment. It is rather grace and love. And it all comes together in a feast that is given in honor of a kid who deserves nothing. Reward and punishment. And if you think about it, that's our society. 
and in some some areas don't don't get me wrong um there's a place for reward and life has its own punishment but essentially reward and punishment controls the thinking of people if you hang around teenagers you know they live for for their football team or whatever to what to win well of course except that's the reward you see and if they don't win then the amount of self punishment is unbelievable um and they go home and their parents live for the sports which is all about reward and punishment um our team has got to win and if not we all i remember speaking in denver and um uh, after the saturday game denver descended they needed a psychiatrist uh, de- they they descended into utter mis- i mean it was tangible you could taste it on the streets everybody was plunged into despair because their team had lost reward and punishment you're understanding what i'm saying here um and then of course in all of school it's it's reward and punishment and and then the kid goes to the youth meeting and what do they do oh they they have a game how how many bible verses did you do you know where well, you won you won you know now you have a badge i i know more of the bible than you do is this is this society capable of just being but of course then i go to church on sunday and what do i hear reward and punishment see the younger brother comes home with that speech which has been likened i'm not doing it plenty of others have said it that that was the sinner's prayer that he comes home with you know i have sinned against heaven and against you i am no longer worthy to be called your son make me as one of your hired servants have you ever thought of it? that was the necessity of the younger brother it's a necessity he didn't have to work at that his understanding of his father demanded that's what he said it is necessary that you grovel because you're wrong you behaved badly and therefore your father must punish you so get ahead of the game it's a necessity i am guilty i am a failure i have wasted the family fortune i have screwed i'm wrong so therefore this is my suggestion in the way you punish me throw me out of the family make me as a hired servant the elder brother what's he into reward and punishment cuz he gets stuck with the younger brother 
Here the younger brother comes crawling home, dragging his wasted years of behavior behind him. He's wasted the inheritance, and worse yet, he did it for the Gentiles. So the elder brother says, I am worthy. This is the, the reverse. I'm worthy because of what I've done. All these years I have slaved for you. I have obeyed every word you said. I did it right. Therefore, I must be rewarded. And what is the reward? That I be recognized as not like my younger brother. And the fact, he's saying to the father, the fact you haven't recognized that. You haven't rewarded me. Therefore, there must be something else I have to do. But I can't imagine what it is because you've just rewarded him. And of course, reward and punishment is, is gets a bit complicated because it's not merely that he wants to be rewarded. His reward must have in it the punishment of his younger brother. So you, you, you understand me? It's not just that, well, I, I get the reward. I get the reward and you don't. And I see that you don't, and the whole world sees that you don't. That means I feel all the better about it. So my honor involves your dishonor. My heaven must have you in hell, or it wouldn't be heaven to me. Can you imagine? This is how the Pharisee thinks. What Jesus is saying here is an earthquake, a, a magnitude of ten. I mean, th this this is the falling apart of my world. She doesn't deserve it. I do. But God loves her and me. That, that's an earthquake. It, it mended the foundation of the family. It is, is upon love and grace and forgiveness, not a list of good behaviors. It, it's, it's with us everywhere. It's necessary, he said. Necessary. It's a divine decree. There's no other way in the kingdom of God. Nothing can be earned by behavior or promises or dedications. Everything was about the father, not about the boys. It was the father's love, the father's grace. It wasn't because the boys were good or bad. It was because the Father is the way the Father is. That's why Jesus said, this, this is it. It's no discussion. It's no possibility of another way. And the Father came and stood on the porch. That's, I'll wait till week three for that. But he, he came and stood on the porch. 
that was unheard of. Um, the, the, the elder brother had insulted the father to the max and he should have just been picked up and carried off. They had servants to do that. Instead, the father comes, leaves the lights of the party and comes and stands by the elder brother who is raging and saying he will not go in. The father doesn't answer him, really. He just, he very simply states the truth. And then he says, it is necessary that we go in and we join in this place of celebration of grace, which is blazing lights and joy and He was saying to the elder brother, you can say whatever you want. You're at a dead end. There's not another door to go through. You either go through that door into that party, which would be your statement of accepting grace in your life and in your brother's life. Or we stand here. And you're not standing here alone. I'm standing with you in the dark. And any time you say anything, I'll just remind you, it's necessary that we go in. Because there is no other word to say. No more discussion. So you can stand here for a million years and you say, how long are we going to be here? And all I say, it's necessary that we go in. There is nothing else to say. It's it's very, very real to me today. Our death, the man said, you know, the father said, my son was dead. He was lost. What was his dead? What was his lost? He was lost in reward and punishment. And he slammed into the love of his father and discovered grace and love. And that's resurrection. That was resurrection, not merely an event, but resurrection is a continual thrusting forward. It was a new world. You'll never find this by yourself. The Father said, rejoice with me. Only the Father knows the joy of grace. Grace doesn't make sense to us. Grace is illogical. Grace is against everything we're raised with in every corner of our lives. Grace is the Father's joy. And he says, you rejoice with me. And that brings about, I say again, radical behavior change. And the tragedy is that many now let's say many, in the church of the 21st century have never heard the gospel. It's a simple truth. I don't say that as a put down. I say it as a simple fact. Because they stand with the elder brother. 
I did. That's how I got here. <laughs> you cannot imagine a love that loves people who don't deserve it. And I, a hundred people are now going through my mind. I can see them. And I, I remember the look on their face when they heard this the first time. Rage. How dare you suggest it? Scandal. Fire the man. You know. Um, we, we, we're very much at home with the elder brother. Very much at home. And at the self-same time, we're very much at home with the younger brother. So much so that there's hardly a church in San Antonio that doesn't give his speech at the end of every service. Um, we feel so at home. I am unworthy. That feels so good. I'm unworthy. It's a necessity. God's going to punish me, so I'm unworthy. It's a necessity to me. Got to be there. The idea... That as I'm saying I'm worthy, I hear God laughing. I, I don't expect this response, you see. I, I don't know what to do with it. I, and, and grace, I don't even contribute an original faith because the nature of grace is that faith comes with the gift. So faith is my trusting the giver and therefore his gift. It isn't that I have to have faith to get it. He gives it and the response is, I trust that giver and therefore I take the gift. So I can't even boast about my faith. And yet I am not put down. It isn't that I'm this poor, stupid wretch who can't do anything and not even have faith. It's rather that that's the one that's taken together with the Father, arm in arm, they walk into the feast. And he's honored as my son. This is the gospel. And as I say, it will take me another... Um, two weeks at least. This didn't go as fast as I thought it would, so um, we shall see. But that's where we're at. It took me 70 years to say this, so, um, but it is where we live. And Father, we give you thanks for so great a salvation. We give you thanks for Salvation that is you, is you, and is you revealed in Jesus, your Son, and made real to us through Holy Spirit. Thank you that you lift us out of all the chains of bondage, religion, formulas, and you bring us into the hilarious, liberating freedom of your love and your grace. And we give you thanks, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.